You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hey there, tech fan listeners, and welcome to tech fan number 231. I'm recording to you from uh, the UK on a Sunday afternoon. It's one of those bright, cold, but very, very sunny days. Kind of pretty, really. Um, a little bit sleepy, you kind of wander around the place on a Sunday afternoon and because it's it's bright and cold there are people out and about but um, you know it kind of has that kind of sleepy, quiet, everybody's taking easy kind of air which is uh, is nice this time of year, I quite enjoy it. Um, so today I've been to a, uh, was it was kind of a, a mix of a memorial service and a wake I guess. So the situation is that my uh, grandmother died a couple of weeks ago. Um, she was 99. In fact, she, she should have been 100 tomorrow. And that was kind of why we were planning to have a party for her. Um, so despite the fact she died before she reached 100, we everyone was planning to get together anyway. People had travel arrangements. A lot of people arranged to travel over for, for the funeral and then kind of hang around for the party. So we decided to have it anyway. Um, and really make it a bit more of a celebration of her life rather than rather than a sad occasion. And the reason I, I raise this on this show, um, more than anything else, is it kind of got me thinking because one of my cousins had, uh, she'd been asking for this for months, she'd been asking for videos, photos, pictures, anything related to my grandmother. Um, and she put together kind of a half an hour um video presentation that we played at this uh, at this gathering this afternoon uh, of my grandmother's life um, and it had a mix of stuff in it it had um, some video interviews with my grandmother um, when she talked about her life when she f- was first born and was first growing up um, she was born in 1916 so um, obviously a very different world to the world we have today and she was born in the middle of the first world war um, which is, is kind of blows my mind when I think about it, really. Uh, and so she talks a little bit about that in these video clips that look like they've been done over the last year or two. Um, and then there was an awful lot of photos as well with captions, uh, and they were arranged all chronologically, so we got to see her go through her life, uh, meet and marry her husband, have her children, one of whom is my father, um, and uh, go th- watch them go through their significant events in their lives and then um, then going on to grandchildren and, and even great-grandchildren. Um, obviously uh, at, at the age of 99 she'd lived an awful lot and seen an awful lot. What amazed me really is that um, kind of in the time I'd known her, I'm 45 now, um, she was kind of by many people's standards already an old lady uh, and yet she did an awful lot in the time between I first got to know her after I was born and and her death uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So it was interesting, but what, what kind of got me thinking about it and why I wanted to mention it here on TechFan is that we hear a lot of talk nowadays about um, from archivists and archaeologists and people who who look at how you keep track of things that happened in the past and they, they are concerned about the digital hole that's been created by mass migration to digital cameras and to video cameras um, because uh, you know these 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 images these videos they don't kind of they, they often don't exist in a physical form 
So many of them now take these pictures and we might put them up on the internet or circulate them on our social media accounts or store them on our computer at home, but we often never print them out. Um, printing photos out and putting them up nowadays is kind of uh, a little bit passe. Even those digital photo frames that were popular kind of five, six years ago kind of seem to have fallen out of vogue. You don't see them being sold very much anymore because everyone's got um, a phone in their hands and they can see their photos on the phone. And services like iCloud mean that you can have every photo you've ever had on your phone in your hand. But that means they're kind of hard to find when, when you're gone. Um, and, and even with traditional stuff, this a lot of this stuff that we saw in this video today would be lost to us uh, when somebody dies. It's part of their personal possessions. Those things get packed up, shipped off. They might get, um, some of them might, might go to other members of the family and often in, in many cases they're actually destroyed, thrown out as, uh, you know, the detritus of somebody's life. Um, fortunately in this circumstance kind of that all those worries have flipped on its head but because because of the capabilities of our computer systems cheap electronics uh, and the ability to assemble videos and then distribute them around the world those images that kind of half an hour presentation that kind of encapsulates and summarizes my grandmother's life um, kind of exists in the digital form now and has been circulated across what is now a very large family. We've all been sent a video link to it. I'm sure most of us have downloaded a copy of it and um, we're able to review it anytime you want. Um, so you kind of have both sides of the coin there. The technology is, is an, an enabler of memories, an enabler of uh, seeing things that otherwise we many of us probably would never have seen. There was certainly an awful lot of video, uh, cine footage it looked like on there I'd never seen before. Um, and by the same token, we we run the risk of um, we run the risk of losing a lot of that information if because technology makes us very lazy about where we store it, how we store it. Uh, I'm sure many of us are always thinking, I must when I get five minutes or half an hour or a few hours, sit down and go through the uh, the picture archive and kind of clean it up and sort it out and put it somewhere where everyone can see it and that sort of thing and like many things in life we never get around to it um so i i guess guess what i'm trying to say is if you can try and make the time to do that and uh, assemble them in a way that when somebody else wants to put them together not just for your funeral well, that's a fairly morbid thought that we all plan to arrange our our images for our own funerals but um you know for any family occasion for any time when anybody might want to refer to those images Take the time to organize them, kind of clean them up, sort them out, build a system where you can do that automatically and or regularly, and then make sure somebody else knows where they are and how to get to them so that um, when somebody needs them, they can reach them and find them easily. Put them together into something that kind of reflects you, your family, your life uh, in such a way that can be shared with other people because Technology should allow us to share our memories and communicate more easily with our friends and family. Um, but sometimes we have to put the effort in up front, up front. Pretty much always we have to put the effort in up front. Uh, and in my view, you know, in this sort of situation, sitting through that half an hour video, I was glad that somebody made the effort to do that. Got to be honest, when I received the call to uh, put these images together and put the videos together, it, it was... 
this was obviously before my grandmother died. We, you know, she was 99. So, uh, you know, we did not, while nobody was expecting her to die um, at any point, nobody was saying, oh, well, it's only a few weeks or anything like that. She wasn't really unwell. Um, you recognise at that age that, that actually it could come at any time. But despite that, you know, I think um, many of us, when we received the call from my cousin to generate those images, pull them out of our own archives and everything, kind of kept pulling it off, thinking, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Um, and I noticed there were some gaps. There were some people you would have expected to see on that video who weren't there. And I suspect they just couldn't supply the images or the videos or, or the information in time to, to put it together. That's kind of sad, really, because now it's a little bit too late. So all I'm urging you to do, uh, just as a thought for the day to start the show, is take the time to do it. Take the time to organise those memories uh, and to make sure that people are aware how they can reach them, how can they get to them, so that um, they can be used, they can be shared, they can be distributed, and they can become part of your the history of your friends and families, because what what else is life about, after all? So after that slightly melancholy introduction, I hope it didn't bring you down too much, but uh, you know, it was something I wanted to share because I feel it's important. Uh, let's move on to some other matters. Um, I've been pretty busy this week, but I've been doing some tech upgrades at home that I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, since since I moved into my new house about six months ago now, I've had a uh, somewhere in the depths of the garage a, um, I have a microserver, an HP microserver that has some hard drives in it. It's got a full bay hard drive system in and it has a lot of my backup storage, but it also has my Plex media server on it. And um, so I've not, not had been having Plex running here because, uh, as I said, it's buried in the bowels of the garage and frankly the garage is so full of stuff still from the house move that I've not been able to get to the... It's, it's very difficult to go in there and find go looking for one thing because it's buried in piles of other things and you kind of have to sort through it all and then it's there's so much space stuff in there there's not a lot of space to move things around so really it's a space where uh instead what i need to do is start the front and pull things out and sort it as i go and as i find things i'm going to get to them um so no prospect really of getting this media server anytime soon because i i just don't have i don't have time to do that at the moment it's probably going to be up, up until the christmas uh, break before i get a chance to really uh, kind of get my teeth into sorting out that garage um, and that leaves us without uh, media string in the house and we but you know I've been doing a little bit of you know kind of ad hoc stuff I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I, that I bought the Chromecast so got that set up and working um, on one of the TVs in the house uh, you know and the, it was fine um, but you know Chromecast the problem is only certain apps support it so um, I've been able to stream a bit of stuff on my iPad to a TV um, that sort of thing. We have the Amazon Fire TV uh, and we have Amazon Prime on pretty much all our TVs so we've been streaming you know stuff off there but obviously there are some videos and uh, TV shows that you can't get on Amazon Prime so that's not a perfect solution either. Here in the UK um, we use BBC iPlayer an awful lot uh, and also the other catch-up services though they're not quite as good as iPlayer. iPlayer is the first and it's probably probably the best one in the UK, in my experience. Um, most of the other terrestrial um, um, broadcasting channels have a similar service, but uh, iPlayer really is the best organised, the, the most slickest one, the one that works the best. Um, but that only covers one section of programmes from one, one broadcaster, which is the BBC. 
sort of things are missing on there too. So really, you know, I do need to have, uh, I've been doing it a bit, most of the TVs I have in the house will take a USB stick and, um, and play videos off that as well. So actually we've been doing that most of the time when we watch something special. Um, but that's, you know, that's kind of a, it, it feels like a bit of a belt and braces solution. And what ends up happening is I'm constantly shuffing sticks, trying to say, well, which, which, you know, the kids want one particular file. They go, which, which one's it on? Is it on the blue one? Is it on the red one? Is it on the black one with the rubber edges? Um, it's not ideal, really. I, I want everything in a central place to be able to stream it because that's a very much a 21st century solution. So I um, purchased at a pretty decent discount, actually, it's a used model, a QNAP um, network attached storage system. Two bay, um, at this, the one I bought actually uh, came with a single three terabyte drive already installed. So that was pretty cool because that means I didn't need to worry about getting a drive. And I, I need to buy another drive and put it in there so that effectively everything on there is mirrored. And then that server will become um, a media server um, and then also it will act as some backup storage in the house for um, photos off the computers and things like that. Um, so yeah, nice box actually. I, I've used various different network attached storage solutions in the past. Uh, a couple of Netgear ones, some from a company called Zixel, which are normally very cheap and considering how cheap they are, they're actually pretty good. But um, I've never used a QNAP before and the QNAP really is one of those, along with um, uh, Synology uh, is, is one of the two big uh, big movers in the uh, in the the network attached storage space and, and QNAP and Synology have um, products that go all the way starting at all the way at the consumer level all the way up to big enterprise class network attached storage devices so these guys know what they're doing and you can kind of tell it with the QNAP because it is uh, it's a TS212 is the particular model I've got it's not one of their newest ones but um, the nice thing about their products is they all pretty much support the um, operating system that they run on all of them um, the uh, the QNAP um, uh, kind of firmware system is very very full-featured effectively it's a Linux kernel running on there uh, um, on the ARM processors in the chip in the uh, in the Synology in the QNAP server sorry uh, and yeah it's really good very very full featured nice graphical user interface via a website so um, really easy to use unlike many of them which is kind of written which are kind of written in in half chinese half english or uh, badly translated chinese this one's nice and clear and easy to understand um, uh, everything works very smoothly you can tell that these units have a little bit more power in them than the absolutely ultra cheap ones um, and that's really what you want in a, a network attached storage device you don't want to be any anytime you need to reconfigure it you don't want to be kind of fighting against the interface you want the thing to work with you uh, and yeah it performs pretty well one of the particular reasons i bought this one is because it will run plex media server natively on the nas system so i don't need to be running a separate windows system or mac to do that um, and that's kind of one it does loads of really cool other things as well it can act as a uh, a repository for um, network video cameras if you have those for your security in your house it will act as those it runs web servers directly it will act as a VPN server directly um, QNAP provides all sorts of cloud services so you can kind of do, do your own personal Dropbox system so that you can sync files between your computer and your, maybe your laptop when you're out and about and stuff you have on your NAS at home 
Um, so uh, it does all of that for you. Um, it will even do things like um, download BitTorrent files for you in the background, uh, install them on their NAS. Uh, pretty much anything to, you could think of to do with storage, they have a way of doing this uh, on these devices. Um, obviously different capabilities. I, they even have some of the latest ones I noticed, the, the mid-level ones um, have Intel Celeron processors in and they will actually run virtual machines on the NAS. So suppose you're um, an all Mac house, but you want to be able to run Windows every now and again. So if you need to run Internet Explorer for something for work, or you have a, a program you need to use that only runs in Windows, then you could actually build a virtual machine running Windows and have that hosted on your NAS so that effectively any computer in your house, including your tablets, your phones, whatever, could remote into the network attached storage device and, and access the Windows um, the Windows 7, the Windows 8, the Windows 10 partition running on the NAS and actually kind of remotely control it to do whatever they want to do. So it's all pretty cool stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm really, really kind of pleased with it. Um, and it's all set up in the house, was very, very easy to set up. Only took me about an hour, an hour or so to get it all configured and set up and get some media on there, set up the Plex server, and now we've got Plex running again in the house, which uh, pretty much everyone in the house is pleased about. So um, pleasing people is always a good thing. Get some uh, bonus points for that. But um, I also had to, excuse me, I've had text, nothing important. So I'm gonna mute that so it doesn't disturb me again. Um, I've also had some technical challenges in the house this week. Uh, and this kind of brought me onto one of the first principal topics I was thinking about talking about, and this is Wi-Fi. Now in my opinion, here we are in 2015. I think Wi-Fi today is currently broken. And well, right, let me clarify that. It's not broken, but the way we use it is completely and utterly broken. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, I think Wi-Fi is just being stretched to do things nobody ever designed it to do. I don't think they ever... It's almost like it wasn't planned to be as successful as it turned out to be. And the reason I say that is that so here I am in my new house and for, for those of us who for those of our listeners many of whom I, I know will listen be listening in the states the UK is a country where we because it's, it's a much smaller place than the US so everything is smaller you know, we're kind of like almost like a tiny toy town version of the states sometimes so I'm in a house that is actually um, it's a three story townhouse so it's actually kind of like if you imagine three stories um, of a building, uh, well, yeah, yeah, you, I mean, everyone knows what these are like. They, they're kind of, a, you know, the brownstones you get in the States in, in places like New York, where actually you, you have a, an, an individual house, but it's part of a much larger building and it kind of sits as a block in the middle of that. So my house is kind of like that. And I'm on the end of a row of about seven houses, but they're not particularly large. I would say sort of the width of each houses are probably only 35 40 feet so uh and the construction is pretty is pretty modern so uh, cinder block breeze block construction for all of the outer walls um and then everything inside is made of uh wood and partition wall uh plasterboard wall if you like uh, i remember i actually came and, and toured around the house when it was being built before they put all the plaster up so i actually saw kind of the wooden frames that, that make up all the separation between the rooms. And it is literally a cinder block box. The problem is eight houses in a row, cinder block between them, 
35, 40 feet between them. We're all running Wi-Fi, because who doesn't have the internet nowadays? Uh, and most of us are running, a very, you know, two of the big ISPs here are, are BT and Virgin. Um, you can't get Virgin cable here on the, the estate, so it's, it's all BT. Uh, BT runs uh, hubs that are not only provide you your own personal internet connection, but they also provide a public hotspot too for anybody who subscribes to BT. Um, you can't turn that off. A couple of I'm looking on the on the uh, Wi-Fi list here now. There's a couple of people running uh, EE, which is one of the other ISPs here. Something a couple of people running Sky. Sky does satellite television, but they've also got a broadband system. But I can see. I'm just counting out eight to twelve networks just on my iPhone here, just as I look. Um, and the problem is, I know that physically all these houses are on top of each other, which means all these networks are on top of each other, which means they don't work very well. Uh, and I found this out. I I've been I, as as regular listeners to the show will know. I've been struggling with slow internet connection ever since I moved here. Um, we just don't we can't get fiber here at the moment. So I'm on a DSL connection that, that gives me, uh, well, at the router, it tells me it gives me about six megabits down, two megabits up. So um, not, uh, I mean, well, my first DSL connection I ever had was 512K. So it's, it's a fair bit more than that. And it's perfectly good for streaming um, and for most of the things I need to do. But I've talked in the past about how when I record the show, for instance, with Tim, I have to make sure nobody else in the house is using the internet because otherwise the um, Skype connection uh, can can be poor. Now, when you st that's fine, but you take a step back and think about that and think, really, is, is it so sensitive the bandwidth that uh, Skype won't work if somebody else is doing something else? Yeah, we've also had um, some difficulties with streaming in the house, and sometimes. Uh, some of the devices just won't stream regularly. They'll just buffer. You'll get 15, 20 seconds and that buffer. 15, 20 seconds and buffer. Uh, and um, that, that doesn't sound right for a 6 megabit connection. It's not fast, but all by the same token, it's not desperately slow. So I started thinking about this and I, I really came to the conclusion that maybe actually the Wi-Fi router we use, the BT Home Hub 5 is what, what we're given here, um, is the problem. You know, we're all familiar with the fact that sometimes uh, internet service providers give you cheap and nasty equipment uh, as part of the uh, solution they provide. Now, Hoham 5, which is the standard device that BT gives to uh, many of their customers now, um, is actually advertised by BT as having the most reliable Wi-Fi connection of any any router they've ever offered. Um, I've not found it to be that that to be so unfortunately I found that sometimes it would completely drop the internet connection and um, the thing would reset so you'd have 30 40 seconds where you had no internet at all and it would come back and also I found that sometimes it would uh, particularly with Apple devices for some reason it would drop the Wi-Fi so if you were watching start the streaming TV that was fine but all of a sudden the Wi-Fi would go off for 30 seconds and then come back and if you actually were in front of the hub when it actually did that, you would see flashing lights that kind of indicated that almost it was almost like the uh, Wi-Fi chip in the router had just gone, oh, you know, it's still too hard. I need a rest for a minute. And it just shut itself off for a breather, and then it came back. Um, not really what I wanted, so I decided to uh, just use the Home Hub as the uh, DSL modem uh, and use something else for, um, for the Wi-Fi. So I uh, put in a 4th Gen Airport Extreme, 
and uh, started using that instead for the Wi-Fi and it's connected to the uh, turn the Wi-Fi off in the Home Hub 5. Obviously that also eliminates the um, free BT hosting service that I was offering to the neighborhood which I don't think most people use except that and I've seen this on my devices that if you're uh, connected to your own internet connection uh, as a BT customer and it fails the, the next thing your device tends to go to uh, is the is the public BT kind of hotspot that you offer because one of the um, advantages you get as a BT customer is that you can use that Wi-Fi hotspot roaming wherever you are there's many um, commercial organizations that effectively run their uh, Wi-Fi through BT directly they don't use um, they're not they're not using it for their own internet connection they're just offering it as a public service um, it's called BT open zone and um, you go to stations and restaurants and things like that you often find an open zone hot open zone hotspot there and if you're a BT subscriber you get to use that for free so the problem is your device is configured to use those BT hotspots and if your only internet connection at home goes down uh, and there are other BT hotspots in the area um, from other customers then you will lock onto one of theirs using the public uh, SSID to do that uh, and so actually you know so I said nobody was ever using the, the public hotspot if their internet connection went down for any reason or their device was misconfigured they could quite easily have locked onto mine so anyway that's gone now because I've turned all the Wi-Fi off on the on the home hub um, still having some minor problems I, there was definitely improvement with the Wi-Fi once I did that for a start all the dropouts stopped immediately the internet's been rock solid ever since I did that um, so definitely taking that load off that um, ISP provided router was a good idea um, but still had some difficulties uh, still occasionally had some buffering and that sort of thing and I think it's just purely to do with spectrum spectrum congestion um, and this comes back to what I'm saying I think Wi-Fi is broken I think everywhere you go now there are so many SSIDs so many things competing within that radio bandwidth and the problem is the amount of bandwidth available in Wi-Fi is not particularly large because the channel separation there's about I, don't know, I think it's been depending on where you are in the whether in the UK US there's probably about 13 channels that Wi-Fi can use but actually those channels are not very far apart so the difference between say channel 4 and channel 5 is so tiny you might as well not have it so realistically um, if you actually chop up the Wi-Fi spectrum that's available, there are only three channels that you can kind of use to avoid interference. Uh, and obviously, if you have tw 10 or 12 uh, uh, access points competing for those three channels in a very small space, um, they all have kind of um, hopping capabilities. They're all kind of set up to auto-configure and avoid congestion. But the problem with that is that if you've got a lot of them in a small space, they're all going to be hopping all the time. And I think that's what causes the Wi-Fi unreliability. And it also is what causes the speed slowdown. So you, you don't ever get anything like the notional speed that Wi-Fi should give you. You can go out and buy a, you know, the latest specification 802.11 router that's supposed to be give you 300 megabits. You won't ever get anything like that unless you're out in the field somewhere with nobody around you and you're close to the router because there's just too, too much radio congestion and that degrades the performance and I really came to the conclusion that maybe I should stop using as much Wi-Fi in the house as I was um, I think that's what causes part of the problem this is why I say that Wi-Fi is broken because it it's not capable of delivering the promise of what everybody now wants which is to have if I count up just on, on, on a few fingers in my house here I probably have about 
12, 14 devices that all want to use the Wi-Fi at once. If you count all the tablets, all the phones, all the televisions, all the streaming boxes, all the consoles, all the other bits and pieces that might want to connect to the internet. Um, that's a heck of a lot, and that's just in my house. And the, the guy next door to me might be just the same. In fact, probably, most people now probably are. Anybody who's got Wi-Fi, there's a good chance they have a good four or five devices. As just as, even if even if they just have a phone each, a tablet, one tablet in the house, a computer, and maybe a TV. I mean, you know, it's and and if every house on my row of eight houses has multiple devices and they're all competing for that bandwidth, and every access point is competing for the general spectrum in the area, no wonder it's lousy. No wonder it's lousy. So what I did is I. Uh, I, I ventured into my carriage. This is how I can talk with experience about how hard it is to find one particular thing in there. And I dug out the box with all of my Powerline kit that I used to use at my old house. So Powerline is a is an interesting technology. It basically uses the same um, technical idea that DSL uses in that it, it plugs into um, the mains, the electricity cables in your house. So obviously you have copper cables all through your house delivering mains electricity and it runs a radio um, carrier over that uh, electrical cable that delivers data uh, and each box you plug in is capable of picking that in, that uh, information up uh, and then trans transforming it into ethernet and plugging it out the end so um, it capitalizes on the fact your house is already cabled with copper and allows you to transfer data. Now, the, the standard I use here in the UK is, um, and I think this is pretty much a, gl a global standard, is called HomePlug. HomePlug comes in several different devices, um, and, it, and since I've been using it, uh, it originally started about 100 megabits. It's now up to about, I think it's up to about four, 400, maybe 600 megabits. Um, each generation gets faster, but the nature of it is that um, they're all they're all backwardly compatible. And the nature, obviously, is the speed of the network drops down to the slowest device you have in your network as you, as you might imagine but really you know i've got a six megabit internet connection and i'm not doing a lot of file transfer around the house so um actually provided i get more than about 50 megabits i'm perfectly happy so anyway i've got these things out they're very easy to configure you plug the first one in uh and then you you wait for it to fire up and Verify that it's connected. It's generated a connection with a little light in the back. Then you plug the next one in into a different socket, and then there's a sync button. You press on both of them, and that generates a, uh, a an encrypted key to encrypt the data on on your uh, copper. And the reason they do that is sometimes people's houses aren't independent electrically, so you might actually be sharing copper spurs with other houses. You won't want your data to be available to them. Um, and uh, yeah, hit those sync buttons. There's a key exchange that happens, and then a light comes on that tells you that they are now communicating. And then you effectively have uh, an Ethernet connection between each of the devices. So you plug one into your router, and then the plug the other one into the nearest main socket to the device you want to connect to it, and plug an Ethernet cable into it, and away you go. And lo and behold, once I did that to my TVs that were having buffering problems, they stopped having buffering problems. So that tells me the buffering problems were not generated by my 6 megabit DSL connection, but they were in fact generated by Wi-Fi congestion in my house. Um, and by eliminating that, um, I'm improving Wi-Fi for all of my non-Ethernet capable devices, my phones, my tablets, my readers, that sort of thing. And at the same time, I'm also improving the experience for the TVs and for the the media devices and for the uh, the, the Synology, the, the, sorry, the QNAP NAS, for instance, I have is now plugged into there.
um, so I can stream off that to the TVs. So, uh, public service announcement really, I think if you're having any sort of connectivity issues in your house, think about looking at Powerline Kit. It's not expensive and for fixed equipment, anything that actually doesn't really move around, I think it's a far better solution than Wi-Fi. Um, and actually by deploying that, not only will you possibly or probably improve your own experience in your own house, but you're actually helping everybody in the area because you're reducing the number of Wi-Fi devices on your networks. Um, I do hope in the long term that actually um, the people who are behind Wi-Fi kind of figure this out um, and, and figure out a way to actually get um, devices that can truly interoperate at the sort of density that people are now using because I see this as a real issue and it's not going to get better, it's just going to get worse and eventually these things are all going to grind to a halt. I'm already in a situation in many circumstances where if I'm on Wi-Fi in a public place, it's so slow and so congested and so unusable that I'm e easier to turn off the Wi-Fi on my, on my phone or my tablet for instance uh, and just use 3G, 4G. I get a better experience. Now, that can't be right. The whole point about using Wi-Fi is, is it meant to give you a better connection to the internet than using um, radio towers. Uh, and if it's not doing that, then it's not fit for purpose, in my view. And I, I think this is pretty much where we're getting to now with Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi congestion is getting so out of hand that actually it's becoming, in many places, unusable um, or, or, not, or not delivering anywhere near to its capability. And I think that's something that the tech industry hopefully will need to wake up to and uh, and reconsider. So we'll see what happens anyway. Any thoughts on that? You know how to get hold of us. Tech uh, The show at techfanpodcast.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter at techfanpodcast.com, uh, at techfanpodcast, just that handle. Um, and uh, yeah, so I encourage you to, uh, to get in touch and... Uh, let us know what you think. We have had some feedback in the last uh, couple of weeks, so I will come to that after the break. Hi, I'm Bart Bouchot, host of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. Each month I gather together a panel of photographers and we chat about a theme related to the art and craft of photography. It's not about the gear. It's about making better photos regardless of your camera. Listen and subscribe at www.letstalk.ie. And I'm back again, listeners. Um, quick update on where we are with the shows uh, and when Tim will be returning. I've got a f I've not confirmed this with him. He's been so busy, I've not really been able to converse with him that, that directly over the last week or two. But I've got a feeling he will be back next week. I'm hoping he'll be back next week. Um, I'll confirm that with him this evening. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll have him on next week. If not, I will get a um, co-host. I might get Donny back on, actually. Donny expressed uh, an interest in doing uh, doing another show with him. And, and I thought it was pretty fun with him last time. So um, I may, I may uh, see if I can hook up with him if uh, Tim is not available for next week. And uh, talking of Donny, he sent me an update, actually, on his um, weird... Uh, haunted iPhone that we talked about uh, when he was last on the show. Um, he um, he, uh, despite all the um, the work he did to try to figure out what was going on, and and he was concerned that in fact it might be his case that was causing the problem. He 
he found uh, he found that wasn't the case. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this out to you. He said, "Hey guys, you will probably see this on the MyMac thread, but I figured I'd send it in the official feedback." When I was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Dave and I discussed my haunted iPhone problem. Well, as I type this, I am sitting at the Apple Store waiting for the screen on my iPhone to be fixed. The problem started again, and removing the uh, case fixed it, but I figured it was time to get it checked out. I was told the touch layer of the screen had gone bad. The genius had actually seen this problem before and was confident that was the issue. So strange as it sounds, it is something actually that happens to other people. I'll find out in about 10 minutes later. And that's from Donnie. So, uh, yeah, sounds like Apple are sourcing this problem out, which is good. Um, so, uh, yeah, perhaps the uh, the temporary fix he found of, of trying a different case um, was actually a symptom, but not actually the, the root cause of the fault. So, uh, interesting that. We also had, um, as you're aware, uh, anyone who's listening last week, I had Alexander on last time. Um so John Nemo came in on that. He said, uh, outstanding conversation with Alexander David. Thank you very much, John. Uh, John Nemo, for, for those who don't know, is, is uh, one of our MyMac staffers. He handles all our, um, he manages all our review process in terms of getting information back and forth from, uh, from um, the marketing people and from manufacturers to actually review products. And also he's, pretty keen um, photographer and audio guy so he tests a lot of microphones and, and um, photography software over at my Mac he, uh, he's, so anyway just go on uh, John goes uh, Alexander replied that he communicates with many people simultaneously using FaceTime audio if so can you please explain to listeners how to have this conversation with multiple people most listeners only know how to have FaceTime with one person at a time thanks Nemo so uh, yeah thank you for that uh, John uh, I did I did discuss it with Alexander, and it turns out that you know he's got a um, he and his friends have developed an ad hoc but pretty useful way of doing this, which is they actually rely on the fact they have multiple Apple devices. So when he's playing Minecraft with his friends, he will be playing Minecraft on his on his MacBook Air, and so will his friends, and they'll all be on the same server. But to communicate with each other by audio, what they all do is they fire up FaceTime. Uh, and they FaceTime each other in a chain. So effectively, Alexander will FaceTime to his friend Matt, and then uh, Matt will use a different device to FaceTime to uh, their other friend who's playing at the same time. Uh, and they have a three-way conversation that way. So if Rich, if Jer- if Alexander wants to say anything to uh, to Matt, then he can speak to him directly over FaceTime audio. And if he wants to say anything to the other player, he says it to Matt, and Matt passes it on. So that kind of works. Now I heard that, and I thought, oh come on, there must be a way of actually merging multiple FaceTime calls together. It's something I do on the iPhone all the time for um, for mobile phone calls. Um, and when I want a conference with a couple of people, we have USB. Um, speakerphones in the office that we can use for Skype and stuff like that but sometimes it's just easier particularly if you're doing something like ad hoc uh, you don't want to send out meeting invites and uh, use a conferencing system to just kind of call somebody um, on your iPhone pause the call call somebody else uh, and then the, then what happens is you the iPhone opens a button to merge the calls together and when you do that you're in a three-way three conversation so uh, I thought well FaceTime must do that as well and sure enough it it looks like it has the facilities to do that i actually tried this before i recorded the show um where uh, i actually got 
three devices on three different set accounts and actually started FaceTime audio, audio uh, calls between them. Uh, using my iPhone as the kind of the, the one initiating all the calls. Um, so I, I called one device, I paused that call, and then I called another device and set that call up. And sure enough, a merge button appeared on the iPhone screen. However, unfortunately it's greyed out and you can't actually do the merge. Uh, I did a bit of searching on that and it turns out this has been something that's been promised since iOS 8. Uh, and since iOS 8, iOS 8, it's been doing this, which is it offers the button, but the button is, is greyed out and doesn't work. So I don't know whether that's, that's a, hard to imagine that it's a bug. It sounds like an unimplemented feature to me. Um, kind of irritating. So um, sadly, John, you are right in that it's not directly possible at the moment. Obviously, if you, you can do that with Skype. We, we do that with Skype all the time when we're recording multiple people on this show. So um, if you need to do that, then you can do it with Skype, but unfortunately that's not as convenient. The advantage of FaceTime audio and FaceTime video is it's built into the phone. Um, very easy to do if you're all on Apple devices. So um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a shame that it doesn't work. Um, if anybody out there actually has figured out what, how to make it work, if there's something that needs to be changed somewhere, or you maybe need to do the process in a certain way to make it work, then uh, please let us know. I'd be very interested to hear it, and I'm sure Alexandra's friends would be very interested to hear it as well. Okay, so um, that covers the feedback for the show for the moment. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, or comment on anyway, I, I saw... Um, I, I've been watching the, uh, the, the uh, wearables market, and particularly the smartwatch market with some interest, um, <coughs> excuse me as many of you may know I am a keen Apple Watch user um, I'm still very happy with it uh, not any problems with it really um, it's what could I say about the Apple Watch disappointing that it's not moved forward more quickly I think is probably is probably my own criticism at the moment there was a big ballyhoo by Apple when they announced um, Watch OS 2 which uh, is the first version of the watch OS. It only came out a few months after the watch did that allowed you to run native applications on the watch. Um, and I have many apps that run on my phone now that also have native watch applications. Two problems with that. First of all, this uh, typical iTunes store tomfoolery this in that even if, if your, your app on your phone has a watch app and it will tell you it has a watch app, it doesn't tell you whether it's a native watch app or not. Um, the idea of a native watch app is that it should run uh, because it runs on the phone rather than kind of pushing a screen from the from the phone. It, because it runs on the watch, sorry, rather than pushing a screen or interface from the phone. It should run more effectively than than things used to do on watchOS 1. I've not found that really. Um, I've seen the apps seem to be as slow to launch as they ever were. They seem to be as sometimes patchy as, as they ever were in terms of communicating with the phone. And even if you're running it locally on the device, most of the time you have to communicate with the phone because you need data. So um, watchOS 2 has, I'm sure it's an improvement over watchOS 1. Um, it's not, in terms of how you use the apps on the watch, uh, it's not delivered huge benefits to me, to be honest. Um, and... Um, I'm sure I would hope that people in Apple are beavering away at uh, developing that and figuring out how to do it. But I, I think there are some fundamental limitations with watch, what the watch can do 
just based on the user interface and the size of the screen and uh, the processor in there and everything. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with watchOS going forwards and whether apps become more of a thing or less of a thing. At the moment, I have quite a lot of apps on there, but I really do use them fairly infrequently. Um, so uh, from that point of view, um, it's not so great. But it's fantastic for keeping track of messages, notifications, um, that sort of thing. I, there are many, many uh, notifications I, and even phone calls I get through the watch or, or I'm aware are happening through the watch that I often would miss because my phone isn't on my person or is buried in the pocket somewhere where I can't feel it um, or hear it or feel it ringing. Um, and um, from that point of view, uh, it's great for that. Having said that, there are other devices that do the same thing, many of them for less money than the Apple Watch. So um, that's kind of interesting, really. I, I raise that because um, I discussed with Leanne, my wife, about getting a, a smartwatch. She is one a great one for sticking her phone in her bag or her pocket and not hearing it ring um, and not being aware that messages have come in. And uh, she often will leave her phone downstairs in the kitchen charging and then come upstairs here to the third floor and then have no idea what's going on with her phone um, in terms of incoming messages and that sort of thing. So I said to her that maybe she would have a good use case for the Apple Watch uh, as a result and um, even offer to buy one. <laughs> you know, let's face it, if you're going to say you need something, you really need to offer to buy it for the person, don't you? So uh, she tried mine on and said that she felt it was too big uh, and she didn't want the smaller one because then the screen would be too small and she didn't feel she would be able to read it properly. So... Um, that didn't work. But I, I became aware of, uh, I then started looking around at, at what else was in the wearables market and hence my interest in what else is going on in the wearables market. Pebble has one that she is interested in, just been launched, called the Pebble Time Round. Uh, and this really does look much more like a conventional watch, um, particularly for a, for a lady who likes to wear lady-style uh, watch jewellery, um, kind of something with a smaller face and a thinner strap they have something that really fits the bill there. And in terms of her use case, which would be telling the time and getting notifications of messages and calls, that would absolutely do what she wants. It's a little bit cheaper than the Apple Watch, not hugely, um, because it's a brand new product, but there's something we're going to have a look at, I think, and see whether that fits the bill for her. But the reason I... I, I something else that, that really kind of stuck with me while I was looking at this was um, LG very recently launched a watch. Uh, and this was the, uh, the this was the Urbane Second Edition LTE, um, and LTE is kind of exciting to, in a watch name because this was the first watch that was claimed to have uh, a full SIM in it and be basically be able to have its own mobile data connectivity, uh, and that prese presumably. You'll see why I say presumably in a minute. Um, that would have meant you could have actually used it as your phone, could have taken calls directly on the on the watch. Um, we don't know an awful lot about this device, sadly, because uh, three three days after they launched it, they cancelled it, and and they yeah this they cancelled. They didn't withdraw it from sale. Say oh we've got nothing to do with it or anything. They just pulled it. It's gone, uh, and it's been suspended indefinitely. That basically means yeah. In fact, the uh, the uh, the press release they've said actually is not is not an indefinite suspension. It's saying um, that that's what the headline here I'm reading says, but actually it's not. It's they've actually used the words cancel. Let me read this out to you. 
This was sent to Android Police and it says, it's from LG, it said, we understand you are currently reviewing our latest smartwatch. However, late in the quality assurance process for the LG Watch Urbane second edition LTE, our engineers were made aware of a hardware issue which affects the day-to-day -day functionality of the device. After further investigation, the decision was made to, to cancel the rollout of the Urbane second edition LTE due to the complicated nature of the issue. Whether the device will be available in the future will be decided at a later time. For now, our top priority is to ensure that only products that meet our very specific quality standards are available for purchase. Okay. Well, the, the problem is, is that it has already released. People actually have this in their hands. And they've cancelled it. So if, if anybody actually got this thing and paid money for it, they're kind of, well, they're stuck with either, uh, assuming that they, they find out about this because it's not hugely well publicised this, then they're kind of stuck with a, a lane device that doesn't work properly. Hopefully the issue that's caused them to cancel the device will con make them contact LG who will presumably issue them with a refund. Um, but really, days before the thing is due to fully launch with the full marketing blitz and... Um, roll out to stores and reviews and everything that goes with that they found an issue that was so critical that they actually had to cancel the entire thing uh, with no word about whether it may appear in the future i find it very hard to believe that a device got so close to launch with such a fundamental flaw i i it, it astonishes me to be honest um presumably and here i'm speculating but hey it's a podcast speculation is how we live um i'm speculating that they were aware that the thing had problems but were assuming that they could fix it in software with a patch uh, and therefore we're not going to move the launch until uh and I presume they could fix it after launch which is you know it's just typical of today's tech industry um really the ability to over the air patch is something that's kind of ruining some of our user experiences here and, and it's not just companies like lg i think i've I'd hold up my hands and say even Apple has been guilty of this. Uh, there's been far too many 0.01 releases of software for many of the devices they've launched in the last couple of years um, to fix uh, critical flaws that are really kind of kicking people in the pants. Um, and and I, th I think that mentality really, really needs to go away. Um, I don't believe it's acceptable. It's not, not, it's, not, it's not acceptable to your shareholders, let alone to your customers, to commit time and money to a full product launch with all the marketing associated with it so we're, we're talking we're not talking about um insignificant amounts of money here um and and then at the last second have to pull it it gives you reputational damage to the people who become aware of it i mean let's face it nobody's ever going to touch that product with the barge pole again even if it does launch in the future because when it does launch in the future every single person who reviews it is going to go huh yeah this is the one they had to pull at last minute because it was so fatally flawed uh, it's just bad, bad business. And, it, you know, it is bad for your customers. It is bad that you are prepared to push something that's potentially completely unusable on day one um, to keep to an arbitrary launch date, thinking we can fix it later. This is not, the as I said, it's not the first time it's happened. I, I, something else that comes to recently in mind on this is um, that Batman game that was launched, um, the most recent Batman game. Um, you know the, the the Batman games are kind of the Arkham 
I think it was Batman Arkham Knight. These big open world games where you are Batman. You can. It's kind of like man, Batman did GTA. These games are like they're they're very good. I I play them all the time. They're really good. But the last one, Arkham Knight, um, was so fatally flawed on the PC. They tried to launch it twice. Each time they've had to roll it back, and they're now having to offer full refunds to customers. That's because basically the company who ported it from the um, from the console version just did a terrible, terrible job. The second time it was uh, first of all it was launched, most people said they couldn't get it working. It was terribly, terribly glitched. Um, they issued a, a big patch for it that fixed some of the issues, not all of them. Um, they then pulled it from sale. They then launched it again from sale after saying they'd fix all the problems. But even then they were talking about having, you needed like a 12 gigabyte uh, capable graphics card to be able to run it in acceptable frame rate. Um, effectively, <laughs> with, the, with the Arkham Knight game, you were far better saving yourself some time, effort and money by just going out and dropping money on a console and playing it on the console and uh, not playing it on the PC. And as I said, they've now had to withdraw it from sale again because they say the problems in the game cannot be fixed. Presumably they, they could be fixed if they scrapped all the work they'd done and restarted porting it from scratch, but they're not going to do that now because the PC market is too small. Um, but again, huge reputational damage. Um, and really, he, again, another company sticking to a launch deadline and they're prepared to push faulty product out into the marketplace on the basis of oh don't worry we can fix it after after it's in people's hands um and uh yeah really i'm really uncomfortable with that i really i just think it's not i think it's bad business but i think it just shows disrespect to your customers um we should not put up with people selling us faulty, faulty product um shoddy products poorly made products because they're hoping that that after they're after we've handed over our money for them, they've been able to they they will be able to remotely patch it and fix it and make it better, get it better before it goes out the door, uh, and if you can't, then perhaps change those schedules. These decisions are they're always made at the last minute. Um, really, what you should do is you should have a better project management process so that far earlier in the process you have a you have a, a milestone that says. Is this product good enough to be able to ship? Uh, and if it still has fundamental flaws at that milestone, which should be well, well back from the launch date, then you should turn around and say, right, we need to either move the ship date um, or we need to consider cancelling this earlier. Save everybody time, effort and money. And don't, expe don't accept the assurances of engineers working to deadlines that they will be able to fix fundamental problems that they've not managed to fix in their uh, devices or, their, or in their software. Just It's just the way things should be done. And, you know, we all know this. Everybody who, who goes through their life knows that on an individual basis, we can't deliver our, our family life, our work life, our home life, our uh, free time or anything on the basis of messing things up and pushing on ahead regardless, hoping it'll be all right. And yet big corporations who are taking money off people seem to think they can do it all the time. Um, and in some respects, at least LG had the guts to realise that this thing was so fundamentally flawed that they would pull it, they would cancel it before it launched or cancel it at launch rather than continue to push on in the hope they could fix it. But really, it should never have gotten to that stage in the first place. Um, and uh, I, I just guess it, it's an indication of the times we live in that corporations are so desperate to 
deliver back on their investment, they're prepared to push faulty products on us and hope they can fix it later. But anyway, what do you guys think? Do you think I'm being unfair? I'm being harsh? Do you think I'm being unrealistic? Uh, am I a, an altruistic fool living in the clouds? Let me know what you think. As I said before, you know how to get hold of us. Tech, uh, tech Fan Podcast on Twitter, the show at techfanpodcast.com, or, and I'm going to push this now even though I don't use it myself, our Facebook page. We have a very good Tech Fan Facebook page. That's uh, very much Tim's domain because I don't do Facebook. But um, you get a message on there, he will see it, and he will get it to us, and we'll talk about it on the show. Okay, well, that's enough solar rambling for me for another week. Uh, as I said, I really hope next week to have uh, either Tim or Donnie or maybe somebody else on the show with me. And uh, I hope everything is good with you and yours. And I look forward to uh, conversing with you again soon.